Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Okay, so this is, what, what is this, session five? Is that correct? Session five in this systematic theology that we've been doing. And tonight we're going to turn the corner to talk about the doctrine of God, what was generally referred to in systematic theology as theology proper. We've established a foundation of understanding that our, our theology has to be shaped by the Word of God. And we've talked about bibliology for the last four weeks, and now we're going to start talking a little bit about God. And this is probably going to take us through the rest of this course. Maybe not. But more than likely, there's so many different aspects of the doctrine of God that we want to make sure we cover. And I'm going to cover uh, tonight, we're going to talk about the being of God and the divine attributes, what are typically referred to as the incommunicable attributes. They're referred to as incommunicable because they don't communicate. They're, they're not attributes that God shares with us. They're attributes that God has in himself, things that are specific to his character and nature. Um, and then we'll talk about the communicable attributes like God's grace and God's mercy, God's kindness and God's justice and those kind of things. And then we will talk about the, the works of God, creation and redemption and what we learn about God through that. And then we'll talk about the Trinity. And Jeff's going to come back and he's going to teach for about three or four weeks on the Trinity. Um, and then we'll see what kind of time we have left after that. So that's where we're going. But tonight we're going to talk about God and his divine or incommunicable attributes. And I'm going to start with a quote. And this is a quote from a book by A.W. Tozer. Some of y'all are familiar with A.W. Tozer's work. This is from the book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And here's what he says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Some of you have heard that quote before. He goes on, he says, The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. For this reason, the greatest question before the church is always God himself. And the most crucial fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Always the most revealing thing about us is our idea of God. I don't know what you think about when you hear that phrase, but that is a, that is a powerful testament to the importance of what we're doing. And even though this is a massive subject, to talk about the being of God, I, I tend to agree with Tozer. This is perhaps the most important thing about us. Now the Bible tells us that all of humanity has this deep inner sense that God exists. The reality of God is written on our hearts according to uh, Romans chapter 2. And like we learned several weeks ago, it's also written in the stars. The heavens declare the glory of God and what can be known about God, at least in that sense, is made plain to us through the things that God has made. But there is a huge gap between that inner sense of God and an actual knowledge of the one true and living God. And the spirit of our age is one that tends to promote 
great thoughts about man, not great thoughts about God. Even in the church, there is this tendency for us to have great thoughts about man, but not great thoughts about God. And one of the results is that our concept of God is not shaped by the Bible, but it tends to be shaped by our own human instincts. We have a tendency to recreate God in our own image. Um, here's some quotes, some statements that are made uh, of individuals coming up with their own version or vision of God. I can believe in a God of love, but not a God who judges people for their mistakes. I can't believe in a God who allows suffering to take place in the world. If there is a God, surely He must allow more than one way for people to come to Him. Years ago, I read a, a book by um, Tim Keller, and in the book, he talks about, and I think it was the reason for God, and in the book, he talks about the, um, the idea of the Stepford God. And I just, that, that illustration stuck with me. Are you familiar with the, the movie, The Stepford Wives? This idea that these men had this country club living and then they had these beautiful wives, but these wives weren't, weren't perfectly submissive in every way. And so they, they hid their wives away and created little robots out of their wives. And their wives did everything they wanted them to do and said everything they wanted them to say and always looked the way that they wanted to. And at the end of the day, these men didn't have a relationship with a wife. They had this relationship with this robot. And when we do this with God, when we say, well, I can accept this about God, but not that about God, what we're doing is we're creating a God after our own image. We're creating a step for God, not an actual God, not the one true and living God. But there is a way that we can actually know God. Uh, Jesus actually prayed this to the Father in John chapter 17. He says, this is eternal life, and He's talking about us here, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's from John 17. That's in Jesus' prayer. So God can be known and God wants to be known. And that's part of the purpose for which Christ came is to make God known to us. God has revealed Himself in His Word in part because He wants us to know who He is and what He is like. And He wants us to understand why He does the things that He does. He wants us to know Him as He is, and to love Him not based on what we feel, but based on what we know is true of our God. So tonight as we kick off this next section of our systematic theology, we're going to talk about those two things I mentioned earlier, the being of God, and please understand, I'm not going to exhaust that, and I should do one lesson for each of those subjects, I'm cramming this together, I'm not going to exhaust an understanding of the being of God, it's more of an introduction to the divine nature and the divine attributes. So that's where we are tonight. So we're going to start by looking at Genesis 1.1. And you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. You probably already know. What does Genesis 1.1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there's a world of truth wrapped up in that phrase. And one of the things we learn about God from that phrase alone, is that God was. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible doesn't begin by giving us a basic introduction to God as the main character of the story. There is no philosophical explanation for His existence, nor is there a theological description of His nature. Instead, the Bible begins 
with the assumption of the existence of God and it operates from page one with the understanding that God existed before the beginning of all things. There was a point at which there was nothing but God. <laughs> and God has always been. Uh, I've been studying and thinking and talking to individuals about how do we define God in terms of His relationship to time. Uh, we tend to say things like God is outside of time. And that's not necessarily untrue, but it's probably best to say that God created time as the medium whereby things that other things that He created changes. And therefore, God can enter into time, but God is not bound by time. He's always been. Time is something that He made. It's a created thing. But there was a point at which there was nothing but God. God exists on His own, independent of everything, outside of space and time, or at least not hindered by space and time. He with wisdom and power and authority that is unique to His character, created everything that is. We understand God to be eternal. Sharnak, uh, there's a two-volume set in my library, Sharnak, one of the Puritan divines, talking about the, the nature and the attributes of God. And here's a quote from him. He says, Eternity is a perfect possession of life without any variation. It comprehends itself in all years, all ages, all periods of ages. It never begins, it endures, and eternity belongs to God. It is the duration of His essence. When the Bible introduces us to God, it, it does so by showing what God did to bring the universe into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When little children begin to ask big questions, they often ask, well, where did we come from? I'm sure your kids have asked that at some point. Uh, where did we come from? Where did these things come from? Where did this animal come from? And as good parents, we try to answer them in a way that they can understand. Or maybe you just say, I don't know, go ask your dad. Or I don't know, go ask your mom. Or maybe you said, I don't know, go ask Pastor Justin. Um, but, but our Baptist catechism is aimed at teaching these truths in a simple way and here's the question, who made you? And what is the answer? God made me. And the reply is, well, what else did God make? And the answer is, God made all things. And, and many of our children are content with that, but not all of them. And even at a young age, they're asking natural questions, big, massive, natural questions. And, and they want to ask the question of, well, well what... Who made God? If God made me and God made all things, then the natural next question is, well, then who made God? And that may be the point at which you say, well, go ask Pastor Justin. <laughs> because children understand at some level that principle of cause and effect. If something exists, it exists because something brought it into existence or someone made it, created it, put it together. And yet, as we study the the divine being of God and we trace back the chain of cause and effect. We chase it all the way back to the beginning and we come to the point where the, the, the chain of cause and effect ends and we just have the cause. The uncaused cause, as the philosophers will say. And there's God. 
God creates, but He wasn't created. God makes, but He wasn't made. God simply is and has always been. There was a time when the universe did not exist, but there has never been a time when God did not exist. He's the uncaused cause, the unmade maker of the universe. And He doesn't merely exist within space and time. Time and space exist because of Him. God is not dependent upon created things. Instead, all created things are dependent upon Him. He is God and there is no other. He is God and there is none like Him. Right? This is what we understand. His power is so great, according to the, the first couple of chapters in Genesis, His power is so great that He can say a word and the universe brings into being. So at some level we have to gra grapple with the reality that this being that we're trying to understand is incomprehensible. He's beyond our ability to fully grasp it. We can put words to it. We can, uh, we can try to define it. We can describe it. But that doesn't mean that we fully comprehend it. And that's okay. But part of studying the, the being of God and the nature of God it will cause you to just back up and realize how different we are. And if your view of God shrinks, then you're not doing it right. Your view of yourself should shrink and your view of God should continue to expand as He reveals more and more and more of His immensity to us. Here's a, a quote from J.I. Packer, which by the way, I, I looked for these books in our library and I didn't find them, so I'm assuming somebody checked them out. But if you want to study or read a book on this particular subject and you don't want to grab a systematic theology to do it, A.W. Tozer's book, Knowledge of the Holy, is outstanding. Um, you can get some stuff by Pink on the sovereignty of God, which would be great, but it's going to be a little more specifically oriented. Um, Knowing God by J.I. Packer is a Christian classic for a reason. It's an excellent book. And R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God is also an excellent I don't have one of these to give away. Maybe next week I'll bring one. I'll get it on Amazon and bring one in and I'll give it away. But these are excellent books. If you've never read these, these are good to put on your Amazon wish list so your spouse can buy it for you. Um, you will not waste time reading these books. But J.I. Packer, in Knowing God, he says this. He, he's talking about God. He exists forever and He is always the same. He does not grow older. He does not gain new powers or lose the ones He has. He does not mature or develop. He does not get stronger or weaker or wiser as time goes by. God exists in His being in a state of perfection. And that is something that we can't, we can't understand through experience and study. God is eternal in His essence. And this poses a problem for us because we are finite. Our human reasoning is bound to the finite categories and limitations and experience of life here. And what this means is, is if we're going to truly gain an understanding of and the eternal nature of God, then He's going to have to reveal Himself to us. And thankfully, that's what He's done. Um, and I'm thinking about uh, one of my favorite passages. Do, do y'all have those passages that you, you're kind of like, like a theme verse for your life? Are y'all theme verse people? I'm not that guy. I, that, maybe I should be that guy. But there are certain passages of Scripture that God has just lodged into my thinking over the years. And maybe that means I'm a theme verse guy and I just don't realize it. But one of them is Exodus chapter 34. How many of y'all have Exodus 34 as your theme verse? Didn't think so. In Exodus chapter 34, this, that's this interaction between Moses and God. 
And it's in, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses says to God, show me your glory. And this is after all the mess that's happened, right? And, and show me your glory. And God's like, okay. And then he has to pause and it takes an entire chapter before he actually does it. The Bible tells us about this situation and it's actually, God like prepares Moses for it. He's like, I'm going to show you my glory. And then he, he says, but here's what's going to have to happen. You're going to have to go here and I'm going to have to hide you in the rocks. Right? Y'all remember? I mean, just weird language. And there's no explanation for it other than the fact that you can't see me, so I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And then he says, and I'm going to walk past you, and you're going to see the after effect of my being. And as God does this, as God walks in front of Moses, do you remember what he does? He declares his name. And that's the, that's the part that makes me get like all choked up. He, he declares his name. And his name is not just this one little simple thing. In declaring his name, he declares what he's like. And here's what God says in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 5. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud. He stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I just love that, that whole picture, that whole scene, and all the build-up that goes to it. And all of these things that God reveals about Himself right here that we didn't know anything about prior to that, and we're going we're gonna to grow in our understanding of its application as the Scriptures continue to unfold, right? And then when Moses hears this, after God has passed by and said His name, declared His name, the Bible says that Moses quickly, quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. In this scene, God reveals things about Himself that no one had ever heard, known, or conceived of. And one of them is wrapped up in the idea of His name. So, we learn a little bit about God in Genesis 1-1 that God was His eternality. We learn a little bit more about Him here, and I'm just going to title it, God Is. God was and God is. So this was not the first time that God revealed Himself to Moses in a miraculous way, right? Y'all remember the first time he revealed himself to Moses in a miraculous way? In the burning bush, yeah. So it's in Exodus chapter 3. Moses was tending his sheep. Uh, he saw this strange bush. And it was strange because it was engulfed in fire, but the fire was not consuming the bush. This is odd for us, right? The fire, whatever it was about this fire, this fire did not require fuel in order to burn. That's strange. This fire burned all by itself. It sustained itself. It was pure. It was holy. It was not dependent upon an energy outside of itself. It was its own source of life. And in that image, we have something of a metaphor, a picture of, of what God is like. 
God was like the fire, or the fire was kind of like God, in that God is not dependent upon another source of energy. God has His life in Himself. The fire was self-sustaining, self-sufficient, like God. Right? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but that's a good thing to ponder. But out of this bush, this strange, fiery situation, God told Moses that He's going to go to Egypt, He's going to lead the Hebrew people out of slavery, and then God said, and I'm going to be with you. And that wasn't enough for Moses. Moses says, wait, are you sure you want to use me? I mean, I'm, I'm a stuttering fella. I can't, I can't talk all that well. Are you sure you want to send me back to Egypt? You know what happened the last time I was there. And, and, and when God just kind of dismissed all that, then he says, but when I go to your people, when I go to the Hebrews and I tell them, you know, that you've sent me, what am I supposed to tell them? Who are you? What is your name? What if I get there and they don't recognize you? And God said this. God says, I am that I am. I am that I am. And he said to Moses, he said, you must say this to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. You probably heard somebody teach on this or read on this or thought about this yourself. I am is what we would understand to be the personal name of God. It is, in the Hebrew, it's pronounced eh, yeah, but we pronounce it Yahweh, right? You all familiar with that, that whole concept? Uh, this is the most common name for God that's used in Scripture. It occurs over 6,000 times, but when we see it in Scripture, we don't see it as Yahweh. We see it as, all caps, Lord, L-O-R-D, and I won't get into why it's, it's done that way. But, but the question that I have is, what does this name mean? And what does this tell us about God? As God reveals Himself to us, what does this tell us about God? Well, we already know from the beginning of the book of Genesis that God is eternal in the sense that He has always been, but this name helps to expand our understanding by showing us that not only has God always been, but God will always be. For God, there is no past or future, there is only present. Time begins and ends, but God is omnitemporal. It's one of those omnis. We're going to get into some more of those a little bit later. Time is a created medium wherein change occurs, but God does not change. He simply is. God is what He always was, and He is what He will always be. I know the first time I heard someone or I read someone describing the perfections of God in that sense. It, it, was, it was really hard for me to grasp it. The idea that God is unchanging. He doesn't mature. He doesn't grow. He doesn't shrink. He simply stays what He is. And He has always been what He is. That's hard for me to grasp. Maybe it's hard for you. Maybe it's not hard for you. Maybe you should be teaching. God is. And His being is not dependent upon anything. God will always be. From everlasting to everlasting, the Scriptures tell us He is God. And when, that, when we see that phrase, it's not just a cute phrase that we should stick on a bumper sticker telling us something about Him. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. That is His essence. But there is so much more for us to learn about God. So we've looked at two things. God was. We've looked at the fact that God is. And oh man, we've got four more. I'm going I'm to try to fly through this. Before I do that, I gotta ask you a question. Anybody familiar with the movie Hoosiers? Yes. Couple of you. 
the dice is. I, I fully expected Jeremy to be, because he's, he's an old movie buff. I'm sure Jenny is too. Right, there you go, John. I'm familiar with the movie Hoosiers. There's a scene in the movie Hoosiers that, that helps us to understand something. Um, Hoosiers is about a small town high school basketball team making a run for the state championship. Never, never really been there, never done anything like that. But they've got this guy, and he's just a stud, and so they're going to they're gonna make their run. But when they arrive at the gym, this is, this is the, the big scene, right? When they arrive at the gym, it's the biggest gym they've ever seen. They've never been in anything like this. This is where the big game is going to be played, and the team is beginning to feel a little small. Y'all remember that scene, right? Powerful scene. The gym is massive compared to all the little small town gymnasiums they've been playing in, but the coach had a plan to settle his boys down. And y'all remember the plan. The coach pulls out what? A tape measure. Yeah. <laughs> what is that going to do to settle your team down? Well, he, he gives it to the boys and he tells them to go out and measure the court. You know, measure, measure the, the lines, measure the distance from the back line to the foul line, measure the floor to the rim, measure the sideline to sideline, measure all that stuff. And, and this exercise drove home for his team that yes, this may be a bigger gymnasium than you've ever been, and this may be a, you know, the biggest spotlight you've ever played in, but the gym floor that you're playing on is just the same as the one you played at back in Hickory. And, and what that did was it gave those boys a sense of calm. It comforted them. It gave them a sense of control, right? I, this is it. This is what we've been doing. We've been running down this floor. We've been shooting on that basket. We've got this, right? And that's what measuring things does for us. It gives us a sense that we understand this thing. We can control this. We've got this. And we measure all kinds of stuff. How many of you looked down at the packaging of the food you ate today? Don't raise your hand, but you looked down at the packaging to see how many calories or how many sugars or how many whatevers were in the food you were about to eat. We do that kind of stuff all the time. We measure how, how long it's going to take to get from A to B, and we just do it naturally. We pull out our phones and say, go here, and it tells me, I'll be there in 17 minutes. And then we text our friend, I'll be there in 17 minutes. Well, we just measure everything. It's just what we do, and it gives us this sense of control. It helps us to feel like we have our hands wrapped around whatever the thing is. And the reason I bring up that illustration is to say this. Um, when it comes to God, there is no measuring Him. We can measure ourselves. We can't measure Him. We know how big we are. We know how old we are. We know how... You know, all of these different aspects of our life, we can't measure Him. We have no ability to quantify God in that sense. And therefore, we're not going to be able to control Him. We're not going to be able to have this sense that we've got this figured out. The moment that we feel like we put God in a box is the moment that we've failed as theologians to really understand His character and His nature. So by me talking about all of these things, I think there's this sense in which we could say, yeah, okay, well, I understand that. I feel like I've, I've got him down. I could, I could, you know, get good marks on Pastor Justin's Wednesday night test. But there is a sense in which we can't fully quantify. We can't fully get our arms around God. We can't fully measure Him. But what we can do is as we read the Scriptures, we can try to, to put language to what we see. And that's what, that's what we're doing. And so I'm going to use some big words and talk about 
various omnis. But before we do that, I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 40. So if you have a Bible, let's go here. Isaiah chapter 40. When it comes to God, we have no ability to measure Him or to control Him, but at the same time, He measures us. He measures us, and He measures everything. In Isaiah chapter 40, in verse 12, it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows Him His counsel? Whom did He consult? And who made Him understand? Who taught Him the path of justice? And taught Him knowledge and showed Him the way of understanding? This section is talking about the greatness of God. And it, it, it almost gives us this image of a child playing. And, and it, He's playing with things that are so massive to us that we can hardly get our minds around them. Who, who measures the, the oceans in His hand? Who, who can tell us how heavy a mountain is? Well, that's God. He, he measures us. We don't measure Him. God was. God is. And the third thing I want to talk about is that God never changes. Right? We've already talked about it a little bit, but I'm going to give you, give you a word. The word is immutability. You ever heard that word before? Immutability. It's a strange word. What, is, what does the word mutable or mutation imply? Change. Easy. Yes, absolutely. It implies change. And when you take the I-M and the negation and you put it on the front and you, you call God immutable, you're saying that God does not change. We change. All kinds of things within creation change, but God is immutable. He does not change. We grow, we mature, we learn, we make mistakes. Hopefully we learn from them. Wisdom comes to us along the way as we experience various things, usually by making mistakes. Change is a natural part of our human experience, but God doesn't experience change the way we do. God is unchanging. And here are five ways that the Bible tells us that God does not change. Okay? Five ways. Number one, His life does not change. Psalm 90 and verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, and ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We've already mentioned that phrase. This phrase occurs six times in the Old Testament as a description of God's being. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Malachi 3 and verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. He's talking about His mercy for them. Psalm 102 and verse 25, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. God does not change. His life, His being, does not change. God does not change in His character. His character does not change. He doesn't have hangry moments like you did this afternoon. He doesn't get cranky in the mornings before He has His coffee. He is never less kind, less honest. He's never more patient or more gracious. 
His character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is always, what, what I read earlier from Exodus chapter 34, He's always merciful and gracious. He's always slow to anger. He's always abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's always keeping steadfast love for thousands and all of the things that He says. He is always, His character never changes. His truth never changes. Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Lord, Your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Isaiah 40, a little bit before the passage I read earlier, Isaiah 40 and verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord will stand forever. And so as we read our Bibles, we change, we grow, we learn. Our passions wax and wane. All of these things happen to us. But as we read our Bibles throughout the years, the Bible does not change. The Word of God does not change. And that means that it's just as relevant and important today as it was 2,000 years ago. It is a timeless reflection of the unchanging revelation of God to man. Number four, His ways do not change. His ways do not change. God has purposes and plans, and yet the way in which He interacts with us specifically doesn't change. And I'm thinking specifically in terms of gospel principles. The gospel of grace or the foundation of grace that all of the covenants after the fall are laid upon. God does not change. His ways do not change. And therefore, His actions towards sinful man does not change. Man has not and does not evolve from one moral state to another. We are sinners who have, do, and will rebel against our unchanging Creator who continually shows us mercy day by day. He showers all of humanity with His common grace day after day. He owes mercy to no one, but still He shows grace day by day. And the consequences of our sin are borne out in this life, and God sends both sorrows and joys in order to cause us to let go of our idols and to cling to Him instead. And He has made a way, the way, for sinful man to be reconciled to Him, and that is through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not another way to be saved. His ways do not change. God's Son does not change. And I just throw this in. We're going to talk about Christ or Christology in a couple of weeks. But uh, Hebrews 13.8 says this about Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's bringing in the character of Christ and the character of God to say that they are one. He is able to save completely those who come to Him. And that will never change, at least until the time appointed comes and Christ returns and there is no longer any opportunity for His mercy and grace to be received like that. God never changes. He is immutable. God knows everything. This is the fourth point. God knows everything. This is the idea of omniscience. So, we have a couple of teachers in the room. I guess all of us at some level are teachers, but let's think about teachers in the classroom. What kind of kids do you have in the class? If you were categorizing kids in your classroom, what would you put those in, the kids into? What categories would you put them into? I mean, there's got to be a teacher's pet, right? Maybe. The, the teachers in the room are not saying anything right now. They don't want to be recorded. Um, each class comes equipped with certain students, right? You've got the whiny kid that never has what they want and always wants something more and always wants to sit somewhere else and that person's bothering me and they won't quit tapping and all of that stuff. 
You've got the perfect one, the teacher's pet that, that's always ready to answer the question and always has their hand up and they always want to hand out the papers and they always want to take everything up. You have the one that always brings candy. I love that kid. The one that always brings candy and is handing it out because he wants to make everybody happy. But what classroom would be complete without the know-it-all? The know-it-all. The one who has the answers to all of the questions. The one who throws their hand up in the air before the teacher is even finished asking the question. And if the teacher doesn't tell you to raise their hand, they're going to shout the answer out before the teacher is through. Every class has a know-it-all. And at some level, we all want to be know-it-alls. I mean, even if you're the one sitting back with a pocket full of candy, you want to be the one who has all the answers. We want to, to be those who know everything that we should know and all that we can know. I mean, we look up to really intelligent people because they have knowledge and wisdom and understanding. But the most knowledgeable among us, the smartest person in the world, is only a faint shadow of the knowledge that God possesses. God knows everything. Everything. When the Bible teaches us about the scope of God's knowledge, it shows us that God has perfect knowledge of the past, perfect knowledge of the present, perfect knowledge of the future. Nothing is hidden from God. Not a sparrow falls to the ground that He doesn't know about it. There's not a hair on your head that isn't numbered. He knows every day of your life. It's written down in His book before any of them had ever begun. This is the way the Bible talks about God's knowledge. He knows everything. He knows everything that has occurred. He knows everything that is occurring everything that could occur, and everything that will occur. God is never surprised. And the Bible tells us that He even knows the secret thoughts of the hearts of man. There's nothing that He doesn't know. God's knowledge is perfect. God's knowledge is such that He never learns. When's the last time you learned something new? Like you, you just decided, I'm going I'm to learn. I'm going to learn how to be a counselor. And I'm going to read these books and I'm going to go to these classes and I'm going to do all this and you work and you do all of this stuff. And it takes years for you to get to a point where you feel like you have some grasp upon the, the work of being a counselor. And then you start counseling and then you realize there's so much more for me to learn. Right? Or maybe you picked up a sport late in life or whatever the case might be. I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of a nerd's nerd. I love to nerd out on things and learn stuff that nobody else even cares to know about certain subjects. That's just kind of who I am. It's part of my personality. But, but I realize at, at, <laughs> as much as I try to understand something, if I can look at how God works, He never has to learn. He never has to study. He never has to experience that. God knows everything. He needs no teacher. It's just so hard for me to wrap my mind around. This is the knowledge that God possesses. Or to it, what's that? Or to prepare. Or to prepare. He never needs to prepare. God's, God's knowledge is innate and intuitive. The Apostle Paul began to ponder the knowledge of God after he had written under the inspiration of God for 11 chapters in Romans, and he comes to the end of that section. And, and I don't know if he just like stopped and began to look back at everything he had said and written, but he comes to this point and he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable, how incomprehensible are His ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? The Bible tells us that God knows the working of the cosmos. He knows the movement of nations. He knows and affects the thoughts of kings. Not one sparrow falls without His knowledge. And then it gets personal. God knows all of those things, but He knows you. He knows me. He knows us intimately. He knows us. And David wrote about the extent of God's knowledge of us in Psalm 139. I wanted to just look at Psalm 139 the whole night, but so many other things to look at. But here's what Psalm 139 says, uh, verses 1 through 6. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. God knows your thoughts. He knows your plans. He knows what you will say before you say it. He knows the totality of our lives. He knew us, as David tells us later on in this psalm, even before we were conceived. And it was God knitting us together in the womb of our mother. He knows and is acquainted with the very depth of who we are, especially our sin. And still, Jesus died to save us. God's knowledge does not make Him a, a know-it-all tyrant. It makes Him a compassionate Redeemer. There's more. Our gracious God is omniscient, but our God is also omnipresent. He is everywhere. Now, over, um, over COVID, you probably had to learn a new skill, and you were great, you know, really glad, if you were anything like me, to move on from your expertise in the skill of Zoom calls. If you're, if you're those people that really love to do FaceTime, then that's okay, that's fine. I'm not that guy, so please don't FaceTime me. Um, but the Zoom thing, I was, oh man. I mean, it's brilliant technology, right? I mean, it's like WonkaVision in our own day and age, right? I can be here in my house and you can be in India, like Luke and Julie. That's the only way we used to talk to Luke and Julie was in India. And, and they were in India, and now we were here. We talked like that. And I mean, it worked. It, it, it happened. Um, there's, <laughs> I don't want to go too far. I'm just glad we've moved on from it. But it's interesting technology. It gives you the idea that you can be on two different sides of the globe all at the same time. But we know that's not true. There's even a place in southwestern U.S. where you can simultaneously be in four states at once. You know that place? Four corners. There you go. You can go, and if, you're, if you have the physical dexterity, you can stretch out in Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah all at one time. Right? And it's just a little brass thing, right? That's all it is. It's a little star, and it says this, the four corners. Um, well, I mean, we, we know even though we have the technology that allows us to do that, even there, there are some unique geographical points where we can do interesting things. We all know that we can only be in one place at a time. That's, that we are limited in that way. God is not. God is not limited by space 
or time. Psalm 139 again. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Space and time, as I mentioned earlier, are aspects of creation. They are part of the medium of God's created ramification for time. They were made by God and they do not bind God in any way. They exist for His purposes. He is not bound by them. In fact, it's, it's safe and accurate to say He's not bound by anything. He has absolute freedom. In His divine immensity, He can simultaneously be upholding the universe by His power, be ruling from the throne of heaven, and be dwelling in the midst of His people. This is not a problem for God. Our God is omnipresent. Alright, do we have time for one more? Maybe. Last one. God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. Power. There's so many quotes that I could throw out for power. Maybe I don't have to do all of that. Maybe I just give you one illustration. Power, even destructive power, has this magnetic draw for us. It's a fascinating thing. How many of you have ever seen those old clips of um, you know, atomic bombs in their early stages being tested. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, they like dropped bombs in the middle of the ocean and had all these ships set up to see the effects that it would have on the ships. And I don't know what it is, but it's, I mean, I guess it's like the train wreck thing. When you, when you see it, you know how devastating and how terrible it is, but you just can't take your eyes away from seeing it. Power displayed in that way. It's just fascinating. It draws our eye. It fills us with awe is a better way to say it. But all of the things that we might conceive of as being powerfully destructive, they pale in comparison to the power that God wields. The idea, the biblical reality and that, that God can speak a universe into existence and uphold that universe with the word of His power it's those, that language is trying to help us understand just how powerful He is. There is no limit to His power. God is all-powerful, which means that He is able to do everything. But theologically, we would say, and I think it's right to do this, if there is some way in which we would understand that God has placed limits upon Himself, then we would say it this way, that God is able to do everything consistent with His holy will. Y'all heard that language before? It's, it's in the Baptist Catechism. Can God do all things? Yes! He can do all His holy will. Job declared at the end of his encounter with God, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's Job 42, after he'd come through and seen everything. In Psalm 115, verse 3, it says that our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. And so if, if there is any limiting factor to the display of God's power, it's God's own purpose and will that limits it. In other words, He limits Himself. But there is actually no limit to the power of God. The omnipotence of God reveals nothing less than the 
Godness of God. There's nothing. There's nothing our God cannot do. Right? Y'all know that and love that song. Alright, so I'm going to wrap this up, summarize it. God was, God is, and God will always be. God is immutable, unchanging. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. And I would argue, I think, I'm, I'm kind of studying this one, uh, that He's omnitemporal. Here's the question. What happens in your heart when you hear this? What would you say? What happens in your heart? Worship. Worship. Like Moses bows down to the ground quickly and worships the Lord. Yeah. When you ponder these things, these attributes of God, we, we don't want to, you know, like, we're not eager to stand up and flex our muscles so that we can show how big we are. We're not waiting for someone to stop talking so we can talk about how awesome we are. When we begin to ponder and understand these things about God, we're, we're left with awe and silence and worship. And maybe you would want to add to that, or maybe you would want to tease that out a little more and you'd want to understand it, but it has this humbling effect upon us. It should. As we begin to grasp and understand what God is like. Um, Jen Wilkin. Well, actually, before I move on, anybody else, anything else that you think of that comes to your mind and your heart hearing all of these things about God? Thankfulness. Thankfulness. It's like music. Hmm. All of this tonight has just been music. <laughs> Like music. What else? How do we process these things? How do we respond to these things? We respond with thankfulness. We respond with worship. We respond with a desire to to sing of the pra you know sing praises to this God who's revealed Himself and not only revealed Himself but has revealed Himself to be our gracious Savior. These things describe how God is, but they also show the contrast of how we are not. Right? There's this distinction that needs to be made in our hearts. And, and we might encapsulate our knowledge of God by saying something like, God is holy. He's not like us. He's, he's set apart. He is different. He is other. And all of these attributes are attributes that He alone bears. God is holy. That's a good summary description of what all this means. But by, by extension, or at least by contrast, God is holy and we are not. These things are true of Him. They're not true of us. His immeasurability, His incomprehensibility, His self-existence, His self-sufficiency, His eternality, His immutability, His omnipresence, His omniscience, His sovereignty, all of these things should elicit from us a response, who is like you? Who is like you? These things help us to understand that our God knows no limits. I love that, that language of God exists, His divine being and His his attributes exist in a state of perfection. 
If you've never studied that, never thought about that, it would be a good thing for you to muse on. I think the Westminster Catechism and the 1689 Second London Confession talk about the perfections of God in a really helpful and encouraging way. Highly recommend that you go do those. But the bottom line is it's helping us understand that God is not limited. We are. We are imperfect. He is perfect. Everything that is true about God's nature and character is infinitely true. It's perfectly true. And studying God in this way shows us our limits. When we contemplate God's limitlessness, it just shows our finitude, right? It shows our the fact that we are absolutely limited. We are absolutely we want to think highly of ourselves. And yet, God in His grace and kindness and mercy tells us, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought. And then God gives us that example, that picture of the humility of Christ. Who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing. Emptied Himself, taking on the form of a servant. And then even further, humbling Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is the mind that we as Christians are to have among ourselves. This humility. Let's certainly not attempt to play God. Let's certainly not attempt to fashion a God of our own image because we will fail miserably to create a God that compares to the God that we've been studying tonight. But let's acknowledge Him. Let's recognize Him for who He is. Let's worship Him, be grateful for Him. And let's respond appropriately with the humility that He calls for. Any, any thoughts? Any closing thoughts that you guys may have? Anything you want to add? Well, let's do this. Let me pray for us. Just praise the Lord. You can pray along with me. And then we've got a few minutes before the kids all run in. And, and, uh, and that happens. So let's pray together. Father, I thank You for the time that we've had tonight to think about You to look into Your Word and ponder what these things mean. I thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us through Your Word. I thank You that You are this God. It is immensely humbling to know who You are and what You're like. And it makes us grateful to know that because of Your mercy and grace through Christ, we have relationship with You. The One who promises to protect us from our enemy. The One who promises eternity to us. The One who promises that there's nothing in all creation that can separate us from Your love. This is the One that we know. You are the One that we know. And it makes us immensely grateful for Your grace. I thank You for this time. And I pray that, Father, that we would never, that we would never grow weary or tired of knowing You and learning about You and thinking about You and pondering You and responding in praise and gratitude for what You've shown us. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for this time. We pray Your blessing over our families and our church. We pray in Jesus' name.